Trust is a concept we all intuitively understand. We all understand what it means to trust someone and what it means to be trusted. But something easily understood doesn't make it something easy to do. In this episode of Lodcast, we speak with Charles Green, a world-leading expert in trust and in particular, the idea of being a trusted advisor. Having researched and co-authored the Trusted Advisor book in the early 2000s, Charles has built a career on understanding, demystifying and analysing trust. We reached out to Charles because the notion of being a trusted advisor is something many of you wanted us to explore further. In LED's recent global survey on the impact of COVID-19 on legal teams, we saw approximately a third of in-house legal leaders finding themselves feeling more of a trusted advisor. Now, I've added a link to this report in the show notes. So to better understand this concept, and more importantly, for pragmatic tips on how to become more trustworthy, please take a listen. Charles, can you tell our listeners a bit about who you are and what you're up to? Sure. Uh, let's see. Quickly, I, uh, I'm American, as you can tell already. I grew up in the Midwest here. I went to uh, college at Columbia in New York City, was a philosophy major, undergraduate. I drove a New York City taxi part-time. Um, I got an MBA from Harvard a few years later, and then I spent 20 years in management consulting, general management consulting. And then in about 1998, I lucked into this sort of second career around trust and uh, trustworthiness in the world of business. And 20 years later, I look back and say, gee, that was a career. And what I'm up to at the moment, uh, more of the same. We, uh, my little organization called Trusted Advisor Associates, we give workshops and keynotes and, and webinars uh, basically on how businesses can be more trustworthy and create trusted advisor relationships with their own clients. Great. And, and this might seem like an obvious question, but it does strike me as important. Why is this topic of trust so important? Why have you dedicated so much time and, and thinking on this topic? Well, it may be obvious, but it, it, it really is a good question. And it, it's worth just taking a second to to think about that. It, it's um, uh, Trust is one of those things that everybody kind of understands intuitively, but it turns out it's not easy to talk about. And I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on some of this. But some of the benefits, uh, they were summed up very neatly by kind of a competitor of mine, um, uh, Stephen uh, M.R. Covey Jr., who said, when trust is absent, things go more slowly and they cost more. When trust is present, things go more quickly and they cost less. I think that gets at a lot of it, but uh, you could add on, um, you know, thinking about your folks, relationships get tighter, people share more things with you, you generate business leads, you cut through the bureaucratic morass, things get done more quickly, um, and and frankly, it's a lot nicer on a whole lot of human dimensions to work with people that you trust and, and who trust you. So there's just a quick checklist, and anybody listening could add probably 50 more items to that list as well. Absolutely. And was there a, um, is there a kind of a personal connection for you to this topic of trust? Was there a moment when you thought, oh, this is a really interesting topic. I would like to delve more into it. It, it wasn't a moment, but it was, um, it, it, it was a sheer luck, actually. I was, uh, I was spending a little time as a journeyman trainer after having left consulting and uh, was lucky enough to get involved in a huge uh, executive development program for Deloitte and Touche, one of the big four accounting firms. It was being put on jointly by Columbia and Kellogg business schools here in the States. And they needed a few 
people to round out the academics, um, you know, experienced ex-consultants, and I was in the right place, right time, raised my hand. And the first day of 40 of these uh, uh, long sessions, um, the head of partner development at Deloitte, the client, came to me and, and a buddy of mine and said, one of the faculty members missed his flight last night. Can you guys throw together something on the idea of a trusted advisor for half an hour? And we said, sure, we're good consultants. We'll do a two by two matrix or something. Don't worry about it. So we did. And it went pretty well. And he said, hmm, what could you do with an hour? So next time we did it for an hour and then two hours. And after several iterations, we thought maybe there's a book here. And um, long story short, there was a book there. We wrote The Trusted Advisor, came out in 2000. Um, there were three of us who wrote that book. And of the three of us, I'm the one that sort of said increasingly, huh, there's something here. There's a lot of depth to this. Let me let me see where this goes. And over the years, I you know wrote two other books or co-wrote wrote or co-wrote two other books. And uh, yeah, there's a lot there. Um, so it wasn't a moment, but uh, and now I look in the rearview mirror, and suddenly a lot of what I learned about consulting is very much tied up with trust. Broaden that to professional services. We work with accounting firms, law firms, consulting firms, um, internal uh, uh, legal uh, services on occasion, uh, financial institutions. Anyway, that's, yeah. So uh, many of our listeners will be familiar with the book, The Trusted Advisor, which you mentioned, which came right. out in 2000. It was quite a quite a revelation when it came out. It kind of did the circles uh, amongst um, a lot of managing partners and law firms, yep. but also amongst your consult your kind of majors. Um, in the book, one of the things that you do is outline a, a trust equation. Um, did you want to quickly summarize this for our listeners? Sure. And uh, yeah, you're right. That turns out to have been the most um, popular piece in the book. Um it, it uh, there was a thing floating around at the time, which we, which I'd had exposure to, called the trust equation. It was formulated slightly differently, but I was attracted to it, um, and I think uh, it appeals to people because, uh, particularly, you know, quantitatively literate, um, results oriented business people, because it you know it looks quantitative. We all understand that language, uh, and gee, here you take a big, soft, fuzzy concept like trust actually trustworthiness in this case. And gee, here's a simple formula to, to explain it. Um, interestingly, though, I think uh, the formula is basically C plus R plus I over S, credibility, reliability, intimacy over self-orientation. Mathematically, it turns out you could, of course, express, express the same thing as C plus R plus I plus, you know, the inverse of self-orientation. And it would have been infinitely more boring Turns out having one factor in the denominator really forces people to kind of think, wait a minute, how does that work? Oh, let's see, that would go backwards. So that means it kind of draws people in. Um, so that's that's the two levels. You know, it's attractive to think you can reduce a soft uh, concept to hard numbers. And, uh, and that um, denominator factor makes people think about it more. I think that's really interesting, and I can imagine people on the kind of accounting side of the world, the kind of the the data fluent people, would be attracted to this idea of an equation. I'm thinking about some of our listeners. I'm thinking about me personally. I, I get a bit scared by numbers. I, I'm much more comfortable in the world of, of poetry and, and words. Um, why did you settle on this language of an equation? Was it just something which came naturally, or did you do it deliberately? 
Well, as I said, we'd seen a version of it around, so it was quite deliberate. I thought that's really right. cool, and um, uh, it just uh, I thought you know if it's cool for me, it's probably cool for other people. Um, <laughs> maybe I should just give it a little bit more explanation about about what it is that we're talking about. Um, yeah. If you think big picture about trust for a minute, I I would suggest that you know trust is a human relationship for the most part between two people, and they have different roles. There's a trustor and a trustee. The trustor is the person who initially takes a risk to trust somebody else. So risk taking is at the heart of that. The trustee mm-hmm. is the one who either proves themselves to be trustworthy or not. And the trust equation talks specifically about the trustworthiness part of it. So the suggestion is that most of what we think of when we hear the word trustworthy can be summed up as, as four kind of components. One is credibility, expertise, credentials. You know, are you, are you a smart guy? Have you got the, track, the uh, you know, credentials to back it up? R is reliability, dependable, track record. You know, can you prove, uh, uh, you know, a pattern over time? But those two are kind of what we call the rational components. You can, they're very familiar to all of us in business and you can point to numbers and behaviors. Intimacy, the third one in the numerator, very different, obviously. That's basically, do I feel safe sharing stuff with you? Are you going to abuse my confidence? Are you going to be discreet? Are you going to laugh at the right places and not laugh at the, at the wrong places? Um, basically, do I feel safe and secure sharing with you? So that's radically different. The denominator factor called self-orientation, which means high self-orientation reduces trustworthiness, that basically says, who are you focused on? Um, yourself or the other person? Um, the extreme version of that is selfishness. Obviously, if you're selfish, that's going to reduce your perceived trustworthiness. But the more common one, relevant for those of us in professional services, it isn't selfishness. It's self-obsessed, neurotic, worrying about oneself all the time. You know, is she going to like me? Are they paying attention? How come everybody's looking at me? How come nobody's looking at me? Uh, all those things that keep us wrapped up inside our head and and prevent us from just connecting with the person standing in front of us in a, in a meaningful human kind of way. So when you think about it, those are um, everybody understands each of those four concepts. We do use the word trustworthiness to mean you know each of those different four or a mixture of them at various times. So I think it it makes uh, it's common sense. It it puts into a simple form a set of ideas that we can all sort of say, yeah, I, I get that. I understand that. So I think that was why it was so popular. And I, and I suppose, um, Charles, breaking it down into com- to different elements or components, um, credibility, reliability, intimacy over your self-orientation means that there's different levers people can pull up and down to self-improve, as it were. So you could identify potentially your trust deficit or your, your area you need to improve on would be, I don't know, let's say self-orientation. Uh, so I guess what my, my kind of instinct on the equation is, although uh, instinctually I, I don't like numbers, what I do like about the equation is it, it breaks it down into component parts and you can kind of focus on the parts which require improving. Well, that's exactly right. And it's there's only four parts, so we can kind of handle that degree of complexity. Um, to your point, about 10 years after that book came out, I did have a flash of inspiration one day walking through the supermarket and I saw some tabloid headline, something like 20 questions, rate your sex life or am I an alcoholic? I forget what it was, but I thought, wow, 20 questions. Am I a trusted advisor? That could be cool. So I went home Mm. that day and pulled out the book again and 
picked out five, you know, five questions for each of the four variables. There was something about the number 20 I liked and threw it up on the web as a self-assessment. Well, 10 years later, over 100,000 people have taken that and we got a lot of data uh, to support some kind of interesting findings. Um, let, let me put you on the spot here and see if you can guess the answer to a couple of questions. Often, who do you think, uh, what happens to our trustworthiness as we get older? Do we get more trustworthy or less trustworthy? Don't overthink it, Mark. Just quick guess. What do you think? More. You are absolutely right. Um, that was actually the strongest correlation. Now, here's an even more interesting one. Who do you think scores higher, men or women? Women. You are absolutely right again. And that's by a, a statistically significant amount. Um, wow. Uh, more to the point, I've, I've given this sort of talk maybe 300 times over the years, and, and I always ask the group before I show them the data, what do you think about those two? <clears throat> and literally, if I've done it 300 times, 297, only three exceptions, the groups have always said exactly what you did. And I, I remember <laughs> the three exceptions vividly, but that's 99%. So it tells me wow. there's a unanimity of understanding the dynamics of trust. It's just like I said, you know, we, we have bad language to talk about it. Uh, and one, one third finding in that part of the, well, most of the reason that women score more highly than men is because they score more highly on one of those particular components. Can you guess which it is? Credibility, reliability, intimacy, or low self-orientation? Which one do women score most highly on? Uh, well, that's a good question. Maybe probably intimacy, I would you think. You got it right again. Absolutely. Oh, look at me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> betting a thousand. And if you look at other data from like Pew Research and Gallup and so forth, they do studies all the time in most and least trusted professions. And again, when I ask people, who do you think is at the bottom of the list? They all get it immediately. Lawyers, I'm sorry, they're one of them. Uh, politicians and used car salesmen. Uh, so that's everybody kind of gets that too, and I'm I'm sure that's not news to the lawyers listening here. You guys know it. Um, that's just you know that. The well, this is why we're speaking to you, Charles, because we're looking to, to redress yeah. that issue. Well, we'll get to that absolutely. <clears throat> What's most interesting is most people don't get who's top of the list, but year in and year out. And by the way, Australia is a little bit of an exception here. Occasionally in Australia, the number one profession is firemen. Uh, uh, yeah, that but, makes sense. yeah, it does a little bit, right? But most of the time, and nearly all the time in the U.S., only one exception in the last 20 years, top of the list is nurses. And that also makes some sense, right? <clears throat> and if you think about nursing, what's the key variable that they're really good at? It's probably intimacy. That's the job of a nurse. It's mostly a female profession, 89% in the U.S., but whether it's a male nurse or a female nurse, that's what they must be good at, that sense of being safe and secure. You know, we're, we're literally and figuratively naked in front of nurses, and their job is to make that absolutely fine. So those are some of the things that come out of looking at the, the data from the trust. Yes. Board. Well, Charles, that's super interesting. And I must confess, I actually have taken that 20 questions. Ah, good for you. And you'll be pleased to know that I'm quite reliable, but I need to work on my self-orientation, apparently, <laughs> my area for improvement. Well, you've um, got, got a lot of company. Well, let's. I'm glad you've mentioned um, professions because one of the things we want to do today is look at, um, particularly in the context of legal professionals, um, and we often talk about, before we deep dive into that specific context, um, I'm interested in the idea of trust uh, as a currency, and I think people often talk about trust being a hard currency to gain, but also an easy one to lose. Uh, would you agree with that statement? 
mostly no, I would not. Um, <clears throat> there, there's several, I call them myths about trust, you know, casual things that we say. That's one of them. Um, and, and the fact is that, that um, uh, it, it's actually f- people come to trust somebody else fairly quickly. Uh, with one exception, reliability does take time because by definition that it requires the passage of time to develop kind of a track record and an experience. But all the others, credibility, intimacy, low self-orientation, we tend to make snap judgments very quickly. And they tend to be pretty good, by the way. I mean, people are evolved over eons of evolution to get very good at making snap judgments. You walk into a doctor's office, you see the white coat, you see the stethoscope, you see the degree on the wall, you nod your head, yes, I've heard of that school. Boom. Instant credibility. Um, intimacy, self-orientation, we make snap judgments about people very quickly. So it can happen quickly. The, the other part of that myth is that um, it's usually phrases, trust takes a long time to build and only a moment to lose. It's not a question of time. It's a question of degree. If, uh, if I have come to trust you hugely and deeply and you do something really bad, I will experience that as saying, Mark, what the hell? I mean, uh, that's not like you. You know, that's ridiculous. How could you, you know, I'll give you a break. I'll give you a second chance because of the history that we've developed. Now, if we don't have any history, then a fairly trivial sin is enough to, you know, distrust you immediately. But it's not a question of time. It's a question of how much trust exists in the first place. I think that's really interesting because when when you when I hear that phrase, trust is a hard currency to gain but easy to lose, I, I kind of superficially think, yeah, that makes sense. But you're totally right. I tend to, you know, uh, make fairly quick judgments about people and whether I'm willing to trust them. So I think that's a really interesting reflection. Yeah, good. Um, if we can deep dive a bit more into the kind of business and legal world. Yes. Um, as a leader in a business context, should we think about building trust one person, one relationship at a time, or can it happen on a group or even a corporate scale? Yeah, um, I would say definitely personal, and and here's why. We use the word trust. This is another example of the ambiguity about words. We use it to describe trust, let's say, between you and me, two individuals, okay? We use the mm-hmm. same word to talk about I trust uh, Google or I trust Apple or I trust, you know, pick, pick your corporate entity. Those are very different things. And um, uh, if you look at, go back to the trust equation, it does make sense to say Google is credible. It certainly makes sense to say Google is reliable. But it makes absolutely no sense at all to even say Google is intimate or Google is low self-orientation. Those are attributes of human beings. So when we talk about groups, the more abstract the group gets, the more limited the trust vocabulary that applies. Uh, When you talk about people, the full panoply of trust comes into play. So to answer your question, you know, how do you build trust? The strongest form of trust is personal. And if you manage to create a a network of people, a group of people who are very good at trusting each other and being trusted by each other, you will have a what I would call a trust-based organization. But if you try and operate just at the level of the organization, uh, those are like reputation management or branding or image consciousness. It's fairly thin. It's not terribly deep when it comes to trust. So as leaders individually, one-to-one, teach people and role model the behavior of trusting and trusted at a personal level. That's that's interesting. I I think perhaps part of the the angle of this question 
is to think about if I'm joining an organization right? and it's important for me to get um, not just one person on board at a time, but a group of people, right? what's the best way to scale your trustworthiness, if that even makes sense as a question? Uh, it does make sense. Absolutely. And um, uh, first, I, I double back on, let's say you've got to impress a group of 10 people. You're walking into some, some entity. Right. I would still say work them one at a time. If you can have some advanced interactions with people, even as low level as email or texting or something, uh, to establish some basics of relationship there before you meet everybody in a room all at once, that's going to help you a lot. Uh, if you if you literally have no opportunity to do that, you're walking cold into a room of, of 10 people, then I think the second thing is role modeling. You, you want to immediately start demonstrating the kinds of behaviors that we associate with trustworthiness. Um, for example, uh, being transparent and honest. I mean, I in my books and stuff, I, I focus on a little story where I got confronted by a client in a first sales meeting. And after the coffee and hello, how are you stuff, he, he pointed at me and he said, what experience do you have doing this particular thing? Well, I'd had almost nothing. So I'm scrambling, trying to think of how to phrase it. My boss mm-hmm. was in the room with me, fortunately, and he interrupted and he said, geez, I don't think we have any experience doing that. What else do you want to talk about? <laughs> and, and of course, you know, uh, Ironically, one of the most trust-creating things you could say is, I don't know. You know, yeah. Who's going to doubt you when you say that? So <laughs> like many things in trust, it's paradoxical, but the uh, uh, truthfulness trumps expertise. Uh, so if you can learn to behave in that kind of way, plus a whole bunch of other stuff, look people in the eye, you know, uh, have one... Um, uh, one conversation at a time. Uh, there's a bunch of things, but you're better off always coming back when you can and to the extent you can dealing with people as individuals. That, that's really interesting. If you allow me, like uh, I was just, as you were talking, I was reflecting on people I know who have gained the trust of people very quickly. And when I was at um, my university college, the, the warden of the college, which is the kind of the person in charge, Right. had this point where he would know everybody, and we're talking about 240 people, he would know yes. every single person's name. And that, for some reason, just him making the effort to know your name before even meeting you so that the first time you met him, he knew your name and what you were studying right. was incredible. And Absolutely. he just totally won over the entire cohort. Uh, totally right. And I, you know, if I, I know a guy that does exactly that. He's a teacher. And before he goes in the first class, he's done exactly what you said. And it's tempting. Some people will say, well, that's cynical. That's manipulative. Well, in a narrow sense, yeah, but think about what is required to do that. That guy that you talked about had to put in a heck of a lot of time to accomplish that, and which means this is very important to him. And uh, and you see the results. It's uh, It totally makes sense. People are uh, impressed by it, and, and they show up at the class <laughs> thereafter too. So, yes, that's yeah, a great I, example. I mean, I would, I would take issue with that being cynical because, you know, I, I remember I used to have this um, a previous boss of mine, and I saw that he would prioritize his emails from his bosses. They would go into a special inbox. I remember right. seeing that, and that made me think, oh, that, that made me feel a bit gross because it seemed like I was less important. <laughs> and that, to me, that's a bit cynical, whereas someone's taking the effort to learn everybody's name. I mean, that's, not, that's just putting in a huge amount of effort to, to, to get to know someone. I right. can't imagine that would be cynical. I, um, I completely agree with you, by the way. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
Um, well, let's go back to you because you're the expert. I'll stop saying my boring story. No, 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 no. That's a good one. Uh, we often talk about trust as a leadership quality, uh, but what about as a follower quality? How does a team member quickly gain the trust of their leader? Um, you know, that, that's a very timely um, question. Uh, if you think about the evolution of the notion of leadership over the last, I don't know, 50 years or something, um, there's a book recently up by Neil Ferguson, who's a, uh, a British um, uh, author and thought guy. It's called the, the Square and the Tower. And he basically says human civilization, it's one of these grand sweeping things, okay? Human civilization up to the time of Gutenberg was managed along networks, small towns, you know, independent networking. Since the invention of the printing press and up till 1970, he argues, the dominant model of organization has been vertical, command and control think military, etc. Since 1970, I forget why he picked that date, but he said we've been moving back to the network thing. And when it comes to leadership, I, I think he's exactly right. You know, we don't do things anymore just because somebody tells us to do. Uh, the way industry structure has evolved, it's much more networked, horizontal, etc. The punchline for all that is that leaders are no longer these dominant, charismatic people who people choose to follow. Everybody has to be a leader in some form or another at some time or another, and everybody has to be a follower. If you're not either of those things, things just don't work. So where leadership used to be inextricably tied up with power, now it's tied up with influence. So are you good at, if, if the moment calls for you to be a leader, do you have the skills that people will kind of line up behind you and say, yeah, this, this guy gets it? And in order to have those skills to lead, you do have to have the ability to follow. you got to subordinate your ego and say, wow, this guy has the hot hand. This guy knows what he's talking about. I'm going to pitch in. I'm going to help here. So you know, how do you? I think you asked, how do you gain the trust of their leader? Uh, mm. it, it's the same dynamic. You, you have to be willing to trust them, which means you have to be willing to take risks, and you have to be trustworthy, which means credible, reliable, intimate, low self-orientation and particularly low self-orientation in that case, because if you're all hung up on, wait a minute, you know, I want my turn in the leader box, uh, that's not a useful attitude. That's all about you. We have to be able to subordinate our own little egos to a, a larger initiative. That's really interesting. And, and this is getting to an idea, I think something you've you've talked elsewhere about, the idea of horizontal and vertical leadership. Yes. Um, and that's the kind of idea of we're, we're shifting away from this vertical command and control style to a more flatter, horizontal, network-based uh, trust right. system. Is that right? Yes. And it's actually, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about your audience of lawyers. The, the client consultant or the client lawyer relationship is, is sort of, it's been that way forever. It's paradigmatic for what's happening. So uh, your clients don't report to you. You know, they can they can terminate you. Yes. But, you know, on a daily basis, you don't have any power. You can't force them to do what you tell them to do. So the currency is really the ability to persuade other people of the appropriateness, correctness of of your advice. Um, and, uh, you know, fortunately, people in the professions, we've been operating that way uh, forever. Great. Well, let's move now from the conceptual to a bit more of a hypothetical. Um, let's say I'm a recently starting general counsel at a large financial services firm, um, and I need to take um, a fairly difficult course of action, and I don't have a long history or track record with the board or the senior executive team to point to. How can I earn trust quickly enough 
to bring the board and the senior executive team along with me. Right. Um, I would borrow from um, looking at new CEOs coming into organizations. There's been a fair amount written about that. More importantly, we can all envision that. You're, you're brought in from outside. Everybody there has been there forever, and you're the new guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you do? Well, the smartest approach is you do a listening tour. You hit the planes or you hit the road, whatever, and you go and try and meet with everybody that you can. You meet with customers. You meet with the key heads of, of departments. And the analogy here, you try and have some individual interaction with each of those board members or those executive committee. It may be short, maybe maybe just a phone call, maybe 10, 15 minutes. But the thing to do is absolutely listen. Um, we haven't touched yet on the power of listening, uh, but it's huge. And I'm hardly the first person to say, you know, listening is very important. But one thing we don't usually talk about listening is it is a form of respect. If you listen to somebody, not with the intent to solve problems or figure out the answer, but merely simply to uh, appreciate, validate, uh, pay attention to that person, that feels on the receiving end like respect. And people do a funny thing. We reciprocate what's, you know, we give good for good, bad for bad. But in this area, if I listen to you, you are powerfully motivated by the rules of reciprocity that we follow as human beings to in turn then listen to me. So that simple basic dynamic is not only valid for advice giving, it's valid for creating trust in a leader. If you start off by very carefully listening to your people one at a time, uh, they will naturally be inclined to then listen to what you have to say. So if you're going to make some tough calls, the worst thing would be to walk into a group of your 10 persons, whatever executive team and say, guys, I thought about this. Here's the answer. No, you're not going to get much buy-in that way. But if you have managed to find, you know, uh, one by one, go through those people and say, you know, we got a tough issue coming up. I would really appreciate hearing your perspective on it because I got to make this call. It's a tough one, but I really want to hear what you have to say. Uh, in the context of an even broader discussion, you know, tell me about yourself, etc. Then you're going to walk into that first group meeting and everybody will have had an experience of you, a personal experience, and it will transform the sense of that group meeting. Not to mention yeah. getting you a lot of buy-in for whatever decision you end up having to make. Absolutely. I really like that idea of a, of a listening tour of sorts. So it sounds yeah. a bit like a politician, but I think... Uh, well, it is a bit. I mean, a smart politician will do exactly the same thing. Now, Charles, we're speaking... Um, at a slightly strange time in human history, so it, it's May 2020. We've um, we're still in amongst uh, the COVID 19 pandemic, uh, right. and that's changed um, a lot of uh, lawyers and a lot of business people's priorities. Right. One thing I, I wanted to share with you is we actually we've done a short survey to a number of our lawyers and clients around the world, and we're still still gathering those responses. But from the early um, responses that I've seen. One of the questions I asked them was, uh, do you feel more or less or the same uh, as a trusted advisor at the moment? Um, and overwhelmingly, everyone feels either more trusted or, or the same level of trust before COVID-19. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm just, I mean, just playing that back to you now. I, I don't, I'm not sure if you have an instant reaction, but I guess my perspective is... Um, that that's quite interesting, and in some ways, not too surprising that during a crisis, um, in some ways you have to trust more, don't you? 
Yeah, that's exactly where I was going, too. I think that in times of crisis, um, uh, there, an American politician had this great line. He said, never let a crisis go to waste. <laughs> and when there is a crisis, we all suddenly get much more emotional. We get much more fearful. We open up more. We're uh, more eager to glom on to people who seem to have some sense of confidence or connection, whatever. So the fields are ripe, um, so to speak, for, for creating those uh, deeper kinds of relationships. And a smart lawyer will proactively reach out and have deeper, broader, richer discussions than you might normally uh, seize the moment, if you will. Uh, a, a dumb lawyer will sit there and wait for the phone to ring. And, and keep talking about competency and stuff. This, this is not a time for just passively talking about competencies. This is a time for proactively reaching out and having much deeper discussions than you would normally. So that's how I make sense of your data. Obviously, a lot of your research and what we've just talked about deals with human relationships and human-to-human trust. Um, when we look at trust at institutions, I was looking at the um, Edelman 2020 survey, and the way that they look at institutional trust is a combination of competence and ethics. Um, so, and unfortunately, based on their 2021, neither businesses nor governments nor NGOs were both viewed as ethical and competent, which is a bit of an indictment. What do you think about that? Because to me, that, that um, it's not really an equation, but the idea of trust at an institutional level being the idea of competence, i.e. can you do what you say you can do, and be ethical, would you do the right thing? Um, seems like a pretty pretty sensible way of viewing things. What's your view on it? Well, I, on some level, yeah, it is a sensible way of looking at it. Um, I, I have a problem with the Edelman Trust Barometer, two problems, actually. And number one, as we said before, when you talk about institutional trust, it's a very different thing. It's much less strong. It's limited mainly to um, uh, uh, the, the, the things like, credibility and so forth, that's valid. I, I wish that, uh, and, and the other problem I have with that work is it just looks at trust. It does not look at breaking down into trustworthiness and trusting. If some institution has a trust problem, you want to know, is that because they've been screwing up, which means it's trustworthiness, or is it an image problem? And they're doing perfectly right, but they got bad PR. That that survey does not unpack it for you. So I find it not very, very practical. Um, it, I, I almost wish we used different words, reputation, branding. Those are all valid things for companies to be worried about. And yes, it does sort of make, you need to pay attention to that as a leader. But my suggestion would be the way you fix trust problems is not outside in. You fix them inside out. If you get people bought into behaving in a certain way with all their stakeholders, you will not have a trust problem. Great. Well, Charles, I think that's as good a place as any uh, to finish up with you today. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you today and then hearing all about trust and being a trusted advisor. Um, all the best, uh, and I'm sure we'll speak in the future. Thanks again, Charles. It's been a pleasure for me too. Thank you so much for, uh, for having me on. Thanks for listening to another episode of Lodcast. Please don't forget to subscribe so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. Lodcast is brought to you by LOD. 
LED pioneered the very first alternative legal service in 2007, and we continue to lead the exciting market we created. We support the best legal teams in the world with our brilliant legal professionals, services teams, processes, and technology. Together, we find new ways to boost the value that in-house legal teams deliver today, tomorrow, and into the future. So thanks again for listening, and if you have any feedback, please feel free to email lodcast at lodlaw.com. See you next time.